Hello and welcome to this week's episode of Mastering Dungeons. I'm Sean Merwin here with the rock and roll air drummer, air guitarist, air bassist, air <laughs> flute, air lead electric triangle, <laughs> uh, Teo Savadilla. <laughs> How's it going? How am I supposed to even speak after all that noise? Uh, that was great. No, that's uh, that's the episode for today. Thank you. Yeah, thank uh, we'll everybody. You everybody next week. Good night. Drive home safely. Um, uh, yeah, we I are filmed. Wish. <laughs> we are filmed before a live studio audience. I don't know. A lot of people don't know that. Yes. Um, yeah, it's my cat, but it's alive right now. It's the trees outside for me. So yeah. Okay, yeah, that's good. So let's get right into it. Let's go to our tweet bag, toot bag, Patreon missive, and we have a lineup today. A lineup of messages and questions to get to first we're going to start with dr nick via patreon he says my mind has been coming back to the discussion for episode 120 and 121 about dropping to zero hit points and sean's ongoing comments about DD being a game about hit point management would the two of you mind discussing healing in the context of hit point management it seems to me that some of the problems that have been discussed over the last two weeks might be attributed to the fact that healing is just too weak Mathematically, healing is almost always worse than dealing damage. That said, powerful healing also increases the social pressure on the healer to heal and limits player options. Thoughts? You know, this is a really, really good point. Really good point. And yeah, and so I'm going to answer it very mathematically. So if if we look, if we could turn D and D into a mathematical equation. For me, it's a it's super simplified. I'm horrible at math, and I apologize to anybody who's like had math over the ninth grade level who is better at me than math. But on one end, you have PC hit points and plus the damage that PCs can do. And that the game wants that to be greater than the monster hit points and the damage a monster can do. And so it's those two things. It's the, the hit points the characters have plus the damage that they can do. So healing may seem mathematically worse than dealing damage. But the damage you can do is multiplied by the number of characters that are able to do that. Yeah. So up until a, up until a character is down, then yes, it's probably better to do damage to the monster on your turn. But once that character goes down, the amount of damage that your party can do is cut. You know, if you have six characters, it's cut by a sixth when you yeah. lose the when you lose the character. So healing that character, even one hit point, adds a sixth more right to the to the damage that you can do to the monsters. Yeah. Uh, so I would say that healing. Uh, is not overpowered in the game in general just because many DMs, more DMs I talk to have trouble challenging the party than have you know trouble keeping the party alive. Right. Uh, right. But that that sort of plays into the equation. Did, did you have any thoughts on that, Teos? I do. Um, the and I agree completely with what you're saying. And it, it's it's also the feel of what healing and hit point loss should work like. Um, if this were a game like Shadowrun and some others where you had a track, and as you take wounds, uh, you were to be at penalties to attack or something like that, right? Which may be, may be more realistic. I'm hurt. I'm less able to do things. Then giving just a little bit of healing can have an impact. And, and it matters where you are on that track, right? But but as we've said before, D&D has really hung its hat on. It doesn't matter whether I have one hit point or 120, I am effective. And that's a game that's trying to do heroic play. And, and that's awesome, right? Um, that, that's a, that's where, we, where we are with this game. And in that kind of a game, then it's even less reduced to, to do a big heal versus a moderate heal or a small heal, right? You can imagine if you had those choices on your spell list, it almost doesn't matter which you use because as long as you stay above one, you're okay. And then once you get to that equation, you get to what you're talking about, which is, well, then I, why even bother healing, right? And even if the game gave you a really powerful heal, like the heal spell, you know, when do you use that? You really only use the heal spell when you expect that your, um, 
you're going to take so much more damage next round that I need to not only get you back up, but allow you to have another round to function, right? Or another couple of rounds before I get back to healing you. And that's why heal is used, right? That's very different than, say, some video games where when you're playing, like, say, PvT, PvP style things, the bars are going up and down wildly, right? Like the healer is constantly healing because you have to keep a healer sort of rewarded and feeling good about that, right? So, so it's just constant up and downs. And third edition did a little bit of that, but even then it was a fairly arguably weak impact on the game. And I think that's, that's just not the fun play that we're looking for, where you're constantly topping off, constantly doing that. Um, and if I can go boldly one more step, it's why we complain about temporary hit points on this show. Because temporary hit points sort of break the logic of what everything we've been talking about, that underpinning of, of where you are, by creating s these additional levels of hit points, often recurring with things like a Twilight Cleric, that just further prevent any need for healing at all. In fact, even the, like, you're not going to go to zero anyway, so there isn't even a need to heal whatsoever, because these temporary hit points are just an endless cushion, right? Yeah. And the the game since third, fourth edition has helped with that limiting player options for clerics or healers by giving things like bonus action heals, where the character can st can do the healing job to make the other players happy and then yeah. still do a thing uh, to feel good about their contribution to the removal of hit points or addition of conditions to the enemies. And we'll get into conditions later and talk about where that fits into this uh, That's this a equation. neat angle that one of the things that 4th edition really did was to say you're not just a healer, you're a leader. And that it's not just mm -hmm. the healing, but it's, it's, the, it's the buffing, it's the movement, the tactical position. Like all those aspects started being part of the definition of what a healer leader was, which then gave you a greater role because you were doing things to help all the time but there were these other things beyond healing. And a lot of times it'd be like, I heal you and you can take a move action, right? And that was super fun. Right, right. Or if you hit with your attack, you can also mm -hmm. heal a Jason ally for X points of, right. X points of damage. And uh, so there was a recognition by the designers by that point that you know, ju being just the healer and spending every action that you had on your turn just healing was valuable and necessary, but wasn't necessarily fun. Yeah, yeah. All right, next we have Tatum Vey via Mastodon. Dear Mastering Dungeons, first off, your information and inspiration has made me a better GMDM keeper to game groups. We owe you a debt of gratitude for helping me be our designated Okay, enough forever, GM. Well, thank you, Tatum. I'm glad we could help. And thank you for keeping this hobby that we love going. Uh, my question is, with the news emotions of the OGL 1.1, what is the general discourse missing? As creators, fans, staples of the industry, what are some of the secondary or tertiary effects or subjects the general conversation isn't focused on that you can bring to light? Um, that is that is an amazing question. Uh, that is a tough question. Uh, should we should we wait until we talk about the OGL to no, discuss no, this, Teos? No, I think this. I like this. You, you want to get into it right now? Yeah, yeah. I, I we're going to talk about the OGL later into the details of it. But so for me now, I'm going to take off my Ghostfire Gaming hat. I am sure. no longer an employee of Ghostfire Gaming for what I'm about to say. Uh, here, here are my sort of tertiary thoughts. Uh, I'll start with, we love this game as a hobby, as something we do for fun, as maybe even a lifestyle, right? A culture. We revolve our schedules around our game and we go out of our way and we spend our discretionary income to buy these things. And we wear the shirts and we watch the, the shows and we do these things. But there is a business behind it. And as... You know, as awful as business can be sometimes, uh, Teos and I can talk all about that from not just gaming side of things, but from the life side of things. Uh, it, it does 
affect this game positively and negatively. And to quote Battlestar Galactica, right, all of this has happened before and all of this will happen again. <laughs> From first edition to second edition, people were raging about why are they doing this, this huge money grab, this new edition that we don't want and we don't need. The rage was there. There was no internet then. So the rage was self-contained, except for letters to magazines mm-hmm. or discussions with your friends. That was it. Uh, we could go second edition, third edition. In organized play, Teos and I have both been in positions where we have been middle management, where things happened above us and we had no say in it or our, our say wasn't listened to. And sometimes it was, sometimes Mm -hmm. it was listened to, and sometimes we did get to make those choices, but a lot of times we didn't. And we had to then report on these changes that we knew everyone would hate to the player base or to people Mm -hmm. in the organization, you know, on, on below us, not below us in terms of, uh, you know, how good they were as people, (laughs) but below us in terms of just the chain of command. And we had to sit there and take it. We had to take the abuse for things that we didn't choose, but we couldn't talk about for business reasons, for confidentiality reasons, for whatever. Or sometimes we didn't even know the reasons why. We weren't told, we just had to do it. So there's all of this stuff happening in this chain. And there are so many people in this chain and it's all happened before and it's all going to happen again. I also wanna remind people that the news is not the truth. I'm not saying that people are making things up when they report. I'm not saying that some of the rumors that we've heard are not true. I'm saying even the news as it is reported, if not factually sound, is not the same thing as the truth. Yeah. There are people with different bits of information on all sides of this issue who know that some of the things we're seeing online are completely false and fabricated, yet it's generating more outrage. We know some things that may be going on at Wizards of the Coast that are even worse than what we're hearing, but nobody's hearing about it, so it doesn't make the outrage any more or less. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so the outrage machine can uh, can be useful, can be helpful, can make people aware of important things. It can also take on a life of its own and drive things into places where it makes things worse for everyone, not just for right. the people who we, we are being outraged against. Uh, you know, and so I'm stepping outside of even like gaming here to to the world as a whole. All of those things are true. Yeah. Oh, Teos, please take take yeah. me away from this place. <laughs> what do you I mean, say? So, you know, I look at these kinds of things a lot in my day job because I, I come from the environmental side. And, and one of the things I really appreciated learning about when I was in, in graduate school was was a thing that back then was called the issue attention cycle. And I think it's a, it's a very good term for it. There are other terms that are used today. But um, but the idea is that when when an issue comes up, you have a narrow window in which you can get anything done about it. And that's why outrage, even when it's misplaced and even when it's partial and, and, and not altogether accurate, can be very valuable because it suddenly creates a response to the situation it calls for that. So, so on one hand, I love me some rage because it creates action. <laughs> but as you said, that rage is never the full picture. And, and even, you know, the interesting thing is, even if we were an employee at Wizards, we probably wouldn't have the full truth, right? Because we're not in all the meetings. So we don't know what, you know, certain departments or groups or whatever, and that can so color things, right? There are are entire projects uh, around products where, you know, you might hear a really hilarious story from one person or frightening story or whatever, use an adjective, a story around how this product was made and how something went wrong. Uh, And then you speak to someone else and you hear about how something went right on the same project from a totally different group and how that really saved the day, you know? they're all the truth. And, and, and it's important to keep in mind that we are not hearing everything that there are people fighting good fights and doing good arguments, just that there are problems. And, and like you said about this has come before, I think we are in a very unique time uh, for a number of reasons. One is that 
social media is now primed to do this kind of outrage response, uh, unfortunately, even when it's not merited. Um, and so in a case when it has a fair amount of merit, we're seeing just an incredible effect, right? I mean, this, this could not have happened five years ago. Um, and that's both good and bad that this can, can go as, as far as it can. Um, but, but it is not that dissimilar from things that have happened in the past, both things that nobody heard about <laughs> and things that people had heard about. In fact, I can draw any number of parallels between what we're hearing and what we heard during fourth edition. It's just that the way it played out in fourth edition was a little different and our social situation of, you know, living on forums and things like that was very different. Uh, and so it didn't, it didn't have the same sort of impact. Um, yeah, yeah, and it's it's fascinating to 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 think on that. It's a really good question. The other thing I would say about this question of you know what are we missing in the larger context is that a lot of people are focusing their rage on wizards, uh, understandably, but a lot of the arguments being made around the open gaming license, you can try this trick at home: <laughs> take out the name wizards and put in the name of your favorite publisher. And how do you feel about that, right? Mm -hmm. So if you feel we don't need any right. open gaming license to create for Dungeons & Dragons, say we don't need uh, any open gaming license to create for Fantasy AGE. How does that mm -hmm. feel, right? Fantasy AGE is a guy, bring, I bring up that game as an example because Green Ronin has often said like, if we don't get enough sales this month, I don't know that we can keep going, right? Like it's this close, right? Mm -hmm. So what would it be like if suddenly people were like, you know what, let's just make it, make more products than Green Run In makes uh, and let's publish those and let's assume that we have the right to do this and so on. So a lot of these things, you know, try putting in a different company name and see whether you still like what's being discussed. Yep, I totally did that to uh, the Eldritch Lorecast yesterday. <laughs> Everyone was talking about how we could make, you know, we could make these things and we don't need permission. And you can't copyright game mechanics and right, you can't do this and you can't do that. And I'm like, all right, then let's say that we make a game and everyone loves it and it becomes very popular. Wizard says, well, well, we'll just make it, you know, we'll just make a clone of that game and put our billion dollar marketing uh, behind it. How would we feel? And, so, and you don't even need we, a billion dollars. You know, we, we have to take it all. Right. You don't need a billion dollar oh. engine like a lot of many small games and many small companies. If even a couple of people were to create tons of content for that game and claim the right to do so. Uh, you know, a great example is mm -hmm. when someone made a pocket version of a, of a D and D. Right. If someone were to make a pocket version right. of your favorite non D and D role playing game and claim they had the right to do that. And it became hugely popular, more popular than the normal core book. It only takes a few number of sales actually to seriously impact these small companies that are probably not in the yep. black anyway right they may not be financially solvent right, to begin right. with so you throw something like that on there and yep. it could just be the end of our industry so i that's one of the reasons why i love the ogls the ogl is an excuse for us not to confront these hard issues to where we might mm -hmm. end up in a place none of us like and, and we should be cautious about that and, and a good trick swap in your other favorite company name and see how that feels Yep. So thank you for that question. And we will move on to a sort of a similar question uh, from Dan the DM via Mastodon. Uh, I'm about to start a new campaign in a week. The OGL makes me want to not play 5e out of principle. I don't use D&D Beyond and I'm playing with all third-party content I already own. No Tasha's, Xanthar's, or even Monster Manual. Should I feel guilty here? Mm -hmm. How do I, as a responsible consumer, navigate this topic? Uh, Chaos, I'm going to let you go first. I mean, you know, I, again, I, I look at things through the lens of my environmental field and, and, you know, my best friends buy SUVs. I, they're still my friends. <laughs> you know, like it, there are complicated issues. And, and the other thing is that, you know, so, so one is that you can't, you can't expect everything around you to be perfection. Um, it's, it's just not possible. It's not how humanity works. Um, also, what you love about the game two weeks ago is still true today. Those things you love, you love the things that those third party companies do for you. You love the things that D&D &D did for you and that Wizards of the Coast did for you. Those are all true things. And I, I separate in my mind the issue from the larger picture, because as we've said before, this has happened before, right? There are people who 
hated fourth edition so much they never touched the game. There are people who hated any number of things that they'll never work with that company again, right? And and then I've ended up working for that company and I'm like, wow, that was a great experience. So it's so hard. Life is complex, right? And and companies are complex. So um I would try to focus on the issue at hand and play the game you want to play. You know, if this is the perfect time for you to try out another game and you want to do that, awesome. But if you would really want to be playing a D&D campaign, there's nothing wrong about that, right? If you want to buy a third-party product or even an official product, that's okay, right? Good people make those things. Those are good products. Those are fun. It is okay to do that, right? Uh, but if your conscience makes you feel otherwise, that, that's all right too, right? Like just go with, go with your heart uh, and don't feel that you have to do a particular thing. More important is speaking up about the issue, the, the specific issue of what's happening and trying to drive that specific change. Mm-hmm. What do you think, Sean? Very true. Uh, yeah, well, I, I, I don't want to make all of this about me, but I've lost a lot of sleep in the last two weeks. <laughs> and a lot of people are being affected by this. Uh, you know, my full, I, I quit jobs, you know, like real life jobs, right? In the business world, <laughs> doing business type things, serious things to come make games. Because I thought the open gaming license would be there to let me do what I need to do and let the companies I work for do the things they need to do. So I am very much affected by this. I give you my blessing to play D&D without feeling guilty. You don't have to feel guilty about it, right? Corporations are destroying the planet. They're fostering wealth inequality in ways that we couldn't even imagine 10 years ago. Uh, they're trampling on human rights all over the world. This is a company that's, you know, making maybe questionable choices about a game. <laughs> that's good perspective, uh, Sean. Right. Enjoy, enjoy your game if yeah. your group likes it. And Teo said, if you want to play something else, I always encourage people to play, try different games. If, if you love D&D and that's it, yeah. play D&D. And finally, George PR via Mastodon. I'm listening to the spells issue, and I was wondering about more free-form spells. My group is all in with reflavoring spells, though I sometimes wish you had more mechanical changes, such as Magic Missile allowing you to choose your damage type, etc. How do you think build your own spell would affect the game? Uh, so, you know, it's... It's a great question. It's a question of power when you have things like resistances and immunities and vulnerabilities. Uh, Those are baked into the core of the game. So if you change that ability to be able to do anything you want, you're changing that equation. But role-playing games like D&D trust the dungeon masters to do what's best for their games. So there's no reason there can't be spells. Think of Thaumaturgy. Think of prestidigitation. These are sort of freeform spells. They give examples in the description of things that can do, but you as the DM can allow whatever you want. Yeah. A, we, could, we could see a version of D&D like that. The, the game master would probably need some guidelines. In your first level spell slot, the most damage that you can do is 2d6 to one creature or 1d6 to multiple creatures. For second level spells, the most damage you can do. If you if you add a condition on top of that, the damage die is reduced by two, right? You could give those sorts of things and then allow freeform spells in that way. Or just allow anything that you your imagination can do. I want to cast a spell that knocks everybody prone. So boom, prone they go. Uh, and that's fine. Now you're, you're going to fight the nostalgia crew who want their spells to do the things that their spells have always done. But you could d- totally do that in a, in a game of D&D. So this is a really cool question. I, I like it because, and, and I want to talk about a bit more in the spell section, because there are things like illusions where this right. really comes to mind. Right. So I think there's two things. There's how much of a spell should be ambiguous and, and defined between player and DM. 
And then there's the kind of idea of can I change things up to fit a concept, right? And specifically, you know, what was said here is sort of can I change the type of damage that a magic missile does? And it gets tricky because what, what rules are trying to do is to make it so that things are clear and feel standard and you can sort of hang your hat on them and know what to expect. And if you can always change the type of damage that you do, then that is an advantage that the spell is not, it would, would need to be taken account into the spell level, right? If fireball could be other types of damage, then that can be advantageous and maybe it should be more powerful. Um, but, you know, it's ultimately up to you, right? And how you decide to do it. And I, I'd say there are a couple of spectrums, like, like in third edition, I played a character where I explained that everything I did, all the spells that I cast were through artifacts that I had managed to get my hands on. And whenever I played an adventure in organized play, I would write down the things that I found and those would become new spells, right? And what I would say to players before we began, when, you know, sort of character introduction time, I would, I would sort of out of character say, it's up to you whether my character is mentally making this up, right? Like they are not in a stable place and this is how they see the world, but you know that they're just casting spells normally or whether you, 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 your character, your, you, the player, believe that I actually have all these artifacts and do these things because it's not in the rules, right? The rules don't allow me to do that, to just mm. take artifacts and cast off of them. But that's right. my character concept. You can choose which reality it is for you. And so I gave people that flexibility. Mm. So there's no real problem, right? And that's one thing you can do is to give people that flexibility of, you know, you think that you're coloring your spells, but are you, right? Subjective. Um, and you're not intruding on anyone's game space or, or, or you know, demanding something out of them. Um, and then there's that extra step where you really are saying like, and therefore I can do, you know, cold or acid damage with this spell. That requires the table to be okay with that, right? The DM especially, but the, the other players as well, because it, it becomes an advantage, right? You know, can, can the person who's attacking with a hammer decide to make it piercing by, you know, hitting with the sharp edge on the, or the pointed edge on the top of the hammer, you know, like, you know, it, it just so you have to think through that. And as long as your group's happy with it, then there's no problem at all. Absolutely. And we'll talk more about spells a little bit later. But let's get into our news and commentary. So the OGL elephant in the room, part three. Mm. A lot has happened. A lot will continue to happen. 20 minutes after the show drops, even more will happen. Uh uh, I, I've pretty much said everything that I can yeah. earlier about this. Well, Sean, maybe, uh, you know, I'll try to just at the high level, right? I think what we've seen in the past week since we last recorded is this issue has exploded, right? It's not only important to people in our immediate hobby, it has, and, and not just across the RPG space, but people just who are interested in gaming in general, in gaming companies, right? People who cover Magic the Gathering but never talk about D&D suddenly are streaming to their, you know, hundreds of thousands of followers about this issue and not making just one video but two or three. Um, we're seeing that there is an engine of interest out there. You know, YouTube is picking these things up and promoting them. And so you have lawyers who are chiming in. Um, you have all kinds of folks. You have people who, who haven't been in the hobby focus in ages who are coming out of the woodwork. You have people who've done bad things who are trying to redeem themselves by talking about evil Wizards of the Coast uh, or companies that are really happy that no one's thinking about the reason why someone tried to start a union at their company anymore <laughs> because suddenly they are forming alliances with other companies and you know coming to save the industry and, and, and so much in between. And there have been a lot of really surprising, I mean, for this type of issue, really surprising moves by companies to say, we are no longer creating content for D&D. We're going to go in our own direction, right? And some of those are things that were, were already planned. So MCDM, for example, have been for more than a year talking about how they want to make their own game. This has been the impetus for them to make that change. Makes a lot of sense. But there are other companies that really seems like just overnight, they're like, I'm going to pull all my back catalog which there's no reason to do, or I'm moving away from this. And so that is really um, unanticipated, you know, really unprecedented at this volume. Um, and we've seen everyday outlets carry this, right? Forbes, 
Uh, we've seen the Electronic Frontier Foundation. We've seen CNBC, Financial Times, right? So this issue really has become so big. And in particular, the, the uh, popularization late last week of the idea of canceling your D&D Beyond subscription has created um, a real financial angle to this. Um, and, and that is, is I think, going to be a, a deep blow to Wizards of the Coast that they need to take careful consideration of because D&D Beyond is, is their platform, right? It's linked to everything else they want to do in the future. And so if that's heard, every, every cancel, canceled subscription is not just a blow today, but a blow for the future. Um, it calls into question what impact this may have on the movie. I would probably say close to none, but it's not great. You know, it's it's certainly not great that if someone out there goes and, and does a, a search for D&D &D, thinking they're going to find the movie, that they might come up with this stuff, right? That's that's not good uh, because the game is not just the, or let's say the plan is not just around a movie, but the overall larger strategy. And, and so you don't want to have negatives and positives colliding like that in, in, at such a high level. So, you know, Wizards is going to do something. Uh, and they said that on their, their blog that they put out on Friday the 13th. And, but what it is, it's not clear. They've mentioned a few things that they're backing off on, but those aren't the only critical issues. There are a lot of critical issues. And so I think a lot is going to hang on what Wizards does to respond to those points and where we go from there. But the industry doesn't seem to be sitting around waiting for that response. Mm -hmm. Yeah, business works at a very slow pace and social media and outrage works at a very quick pace. Yeah. And those two things rarely mesh well. Yeah, that, that's a and good point. So we are seeing. Yeah, just, you know, Sean, your points are really this is maybe another thing in that sort of what, what is something that we don't kind of think about enough is that a lot of people have been saying, you know, how is Wizards not responding? You know, well, it, it's hard. I mean, in my business life, whenever there have been emergencies, you are lucky to get the people in the room within three days span, let alone make a decision around that. Um, it's it's it seems like, well, this should be priority one, but it, it's really hard to get all the people who need to sign off on an issue in a room and even properly understand it, because I think this the extent of this reaction proves how wizards didn't expect this, right? They, they would never have gone forward with it had they understood that this was going to happen. Uh, so they miscalculated tremendously. And that means you have to go back and re-examine everything. Hopefully that's what they're doing is re-examining everything that can't be done in a week's time at most companies. It can't be done in, in a month in most companies. Uh, I'm sure they'll try to accelerate, you know, to do it as quickly as possible, but, but it, it is, it, these things take time and, and it's not surprising that wizards needs, you know, days and weeks to, to formulate a response. Yeah. And, and as we have talked about over the last even year or more, right, all of this stuff is happening because Hasbro needed a new direction. Their investors were clamoring for a new direction. Yeah. And this new direction is, Wizards of the Coast is going to lead us into the future, and D&D is going to become a billion-dollar brand. Yeah. And this is, this is the inevitable outcome of that plan being put into place maybe too quickly and people panicking within Hasbro and Wizards to try to get to that point. And... You know, we're seeing a fallout from that where people who don't necessarily understand the industry are making decisions uh, a little bit drastically without how how much better would this have gone if instead of putting out an open gaming license on a piece of paper to whoever they sent it to, right? Techni probably these 20 companies that were right, making money enough to get royalties, instead of just putting out a piece of paper and saying, here's what this open gaming license would look like, to actually set up meetings with each of them without putting things on paper mm -hmm. and saying, tell us about your business. We want to partner with you instead of doing it the way that they did. Yeah. You can't leak 
open and honest discussion. <laughs> you can leak a piece of paper, uh, you know, with, with that written on it. So, you know, that, that is the ultimate misstep that we see these larger businesses pushing for profit, which is fine. Everybody, you know, wants to push for profit, yeah. but without really understanding the consequences of what they're trying or even trying to understand the, the people on the other side of the, of the issue. Yeah. Um, but it's also important to say that a month from now, or, I'm sorry, a month ago, Hasbro stock was at $55 a share, give or take. What's it at right now? $65 a share. Mm -hmm. So all of this outrage, all of this attention that's being drawn to Wizards of the Coast and Hasbro uh, has ended up with about a, I don't know, five six percent increase in their their stock price and i, um, and I would say that what, what that, that should also be telling <laughs> yeah i mean to me it says that there has been no uh impact on it right and because i think hasbro stock has been quite low and so it's probably recovering from that low period especially as a movie looms but investors are not seeing this yet right and if they see it mm -hmm. it's not clear whether they'll understand it um because I don't think anyone right. is out there at their level saying, hey, here's what that means with the D&D Beyond subscriptions, right? That's, that's, that's not, not in, right. in that kind of level. But, uh, but, it, but, but it may be an impact. We'll, we'll have to see. Well, that, that's what I'm waiting to see if it does yeah. uh, have any impact. So, and, yeah. And it's... we have, you know, your point is a great one that D&D has historically managed to sort of magically elude these kinds of problems while being like every, every time that Hasbro has said or Wizards has said, hey, D&D, &D, we want you to get bigger. It's never been so hard that it's been problematic other than probably the start of 4E. Um, but it has managed to sort of dodge that bullet and be just enough outside of the limelight to avoid that. But we saw and we've been reporting on this, how its profitability and its increasing revenue finally put it so squarely in the spotlight that it isn't just mentioned on financial calls about Hasbro. It is now one of the focus areas. And that's exceedingly dangerous because there's no proof that D&D &D can grow tremendously, right? There is the concept. And I mean, if I worked there, I would love to explore that concept, but it is not a proven thing. And so it's just this potential. And they're trying to move on that potential, hopefully to the benefit of everybody, but they've done so with an enormous blunder to begin with, right? So we have a lot of links in the show notes uh, where you can catch up on all of the different stories. We're not going to go through them right now, but but uh, but if, if you've missed any of these pieces, you'll find that in our show notes if, if you're a member of our Patreon. Um, and, and there's some great great articles, some wonderful write-ups. Comicbook.com has an excellent one on the community impact and changes. Penny Arcade has just a gorgeous write-up uh, on, on things and an amazing cartoon where they bite into Nathan Stewart's arm. <laughs> just, you know, so, there's, there, there are some great pieces there, but we cannot cover everything. And, and, and you know, I, don't, I think we could probably, our next two news items you'll find also in our show notes, MCDM is going to be ending Arcadia and moving on um, to, to change. Um, the focus of the Patreon will be uh, setting content and, and will be eventually towards their new RPG. Cobalt Press is creating a new RPG um, and a number of, of kind of news items like that that are very interesting. Yep. Now, this would normally be like our top story, what's coming next. <laughs> but with everything that's going on, it gets pushed down the list. Uh, They've given us more information on the D&D TV show that's being made. It will be on Paramount+. Plus. Eight episodes have been ordered. The series is being written and produced by Rawson Marshall Thurber, who wrote and directed the action comedy Red Notice, which was the most watched Netflix film of all time to this point. And if you remember or enjoy the film Dodgeball, that is a production of Ross and Marshall Thurber. So uh, it 
he uh, Thurber will write and direct the first episode. And they they've said that the movie and this show will be in the same universe. So whether that means it's all in the Forgotten Realms or it's all in the same iteration of the Forgotten Realms, uh, mm. we'll, we'll, we'll see. Uh, but, you know, this, like, four years ago, if we had read this, we would be like, oh, my gosh, this is the greatest <laughs> thing ever. And let's, let's, let's discuss this. And, and uh, obviously, for fans, uh, you know, of D&D, the brand and the culture, uh, it's yeah. it's getting a bit pushed down the the uh, the chain, you know. And and again, as much as it, it leaves a bad taste in our mouth now, I mean, I don't want to forget that these are things that bring us enjoyment, right? And and so let's 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 mm-hmm. try as much as we can to separate in our mind the the outrage of what Wizards of the Coast has done from the fact that boy, wouldn't it be cool to have a good D and D TV show, right? So so hopefully those the one can be resolved so we can fully enjoy. The movie that's coming up and these things and, and the toys and, and you name it, right? Because because D D is yeah. super fun as a game. <laughs> hopefully, hopefully in happier times we can discuss what should be in a D D TV show. Mm-hmm. And when it comes out, we can discuss what was in the D D TV show. So speaking of TV shows, tell us about the Legend of Zelda cartoon. <laughs> This is a fun article. Uh, Polygon looked into the 1986 cartoon Legend of Zelda based on a computer game, and it interviewed people involved in the creation of it. And one of the neatest things was the idea that, or not the idea, that this this accounting of how Eve Forward, who ended up being one of the writers, was 16 or 17 at the time, and she was asked to contribute by her family, and she didn't know Zelda all that well. But she was playing Dungeons and Dragons and running a campaign. So she drew elements from D&D itself into her stories and uh, from her own campaign. So the stories would, would be kind of things that they were doing and had done in their game. Uh, there are things like a mirror of opposition where your negative character appears and fights you. Like that came out of D&D and was, was, was used in a show. So it's just a fun read about how, you know, how amazing to be 16 or 17 and have, you know, your your parents get you into writing a TV show and you just just draw from your D&D campaigns. <laughs> Dream come true, right? Yeah, that's great. And then Roll20 has listed the top 12 best-selling RPGs of 2020. Um, so this is a Geek Native article taking the, uh, again, you know, right, the role-playing games that were sold via a virtual tabletop platform and marketplace mm-hmm. several 20. Teos, tell us what uh, these top 12 spots look like. Uh, I mean, you know, shocker, you at home can can play along and guess how many of the top 12 were Wizards of the Coast products. The answer is seven. Uh, and uh, the top seven are all Wizards of the Coast, except for one of them, which is Cyberpunk Red at number five, right? So that's that's the impact of that. Uh, also on the list are Call of Cthulhu Starter Set, Kingmaker Adventure Path, Pathfinder Mega Bundle, and Call of Cthulhu Keeper Bundle. So you've got, you know, Cyberpunk, two Chaosium products, and two Paizo products, and the rest is all Wizards. Um, so it just shows how vital Wizards is to the platform, even if half the people are playing D&D. Uh, the top sales are clearly heavily towards uh, D&D. Um, so I thought that was really just fascinating. And it's, again, just important context when, when everybody goes like, well, let's just abandon that. Well, there's a lot of money that rides on it, right? And uh, as well as a lot of enjoyment. So. so that was a new segment. Now we are going to talk about our main topic here on Mastering Dungeons, our continuing look at 5th edition. We're in the player's handbook. And now we are looking at chapter 11, the spells and the appendices that follow. So we talked about spell casting last time, which really covered a lot of the main content that we wanted to cover. Uh, But this chapter describes the most common spells in the worlds of Dungeons and Dragons. The chapter begins with the spell lists from the spell casting classes, and the remainder contains the spell descriptions. They are presented in alphabetical order by the name of the spell. All right, and this starts Uh, with Someone noted... Sean, this is our 20-part series, where we're going to go through the alphabetical list. 20-part series. Right? (laughs) (laughs) Right, absolutely. Except... (laughs) 
hell no <laughs> we are not <laughs> no we are not going to talk about every spell individually uh but as someone noted on our one of our platforms that it's hard to call spell casting and magic an exception mm. in this exception based game because it is so voluminous it is so important and powerful within the game and that is true uh but it it is an exception because not everyone can do it uh, so it really reinforces the point that spellcasting is one of the main benefits to the D&D, and it is also one of the greatest drawbacks, because it's those exceptions that need that playtesting the most, and this is a huge part mm. of the game that is all exceptions to the rules. So when we think back about some of the broken stuff that we talk about that has ruined games, you know, in our own campaigns or people have come up to us and said, you know, yeah, what you said about that, this is the spell that ruins my game, or this is the thing that ruins my game. Like 90% of the time, it's a spell or a group of spells. Shield, Spirit Guardians, Banishment, Hypnotic Pattern, uh, Simulacrum, right? All of those things that are often brought up as uh, that my campaign just came to a screeching halt or uh, combat is so bad because of these spells. Uh, yeah, they're generally spells. Yeah, that's true. The, the chapter does something that I think is sort of interesting, right? It groups spells for each class by level. And that may sound super obvious to anybody who's been looking at the player's handbook across the editions, because that's generally how things have worked. Um, but, you know, what, why is that, right? The benefit of spell lists is you can easily point to a player, whether they're new or experienced, hey, here's your menu of options, right? And you get all the spells that you can take, and then you look them up in the alphabetical piece that follows. And that's usually a pretty good system, right? And the reason you do that is that you can cross-reference, because it might be that, you know, cure wounds, cure light wounds is something that appears on a cleric list, but maybe also on the bard list and maybe also on the paladin list. And so by doing it that way, you get this very nice, clear menu of options in one place. You can look it up alphabetically in the other and it all works and you don't have to repeat it over and over again um, or, or have some other organizational system that would be confusing given how the game often ends up working. That hasn't been 100% true. So fourth edition took a different approach, right? Where it had specific spell powers for each class. And those were listed like any other powers for classes. So they were confined and put together with the class. Um, so that you certainly can use other methods. But, but the current one we see in fifth edition is the, the kind of approach we see most of, of D&D take, most of the D&D editions. D&D 1 changes it up slightly. So instead of class-based, it does power sources, right? So it looks at things like primal or arcane, and then it says this class has access to that list. And what we very quickly see is it then has to make a list of exceptions, right? You are a bard, you get these spells, but you can also get this spell at this level and this at this other. And hey, at this particular class level, you get to choose just another arcane spell, right? So it tries to give you this flexibility because it knows that the spell list now doesn't quite fit. And so there's, it shows that the dangers of going away from our current system. Any thoughts on this, Sean? Yeah. Yeah, I, spells have always been such a problematic thing for me. I very rarely play a spellcaster. Mm. Um, just, just because I, w I want a streamlined game. And I, of course, I've played spellcasters throughout all the editions. Sure. Uh, I've played like every class <laughs> in every edition at one point. Um, but I love a quick narrative game. Uh, even, even when it's tactical, I want it to be more about move here, do this, and let's move on. And for me, spellcasting has always been one of those, especially if you're a person who wants to make the optimal choice every time. Uh, that it turns into a, well, let me go through my spell list. And then the ability to upcast spells makes that even more of a thing because now it's not you have you know four first level, three second level, and two third level spell slots. It's I can move up those first level spells into a third level slot. Mm -hmm. So technically, if you could do that with every spell, now you have nine choices at third level. Uh, 
and which which one of those is optimal for this particular situation that may change when when the character right before me acts uh, and so it's it's always been a very uh, a, a, a system that I've accepted but mm. not necessarily enjoyed as a player sure. Sure. yeah I mean <laughs> And it's hard because I think D and D has has largely cemented itself on this approach, and and when Fourth Edition took its approach, it received a lot of criticism for the idea that mm -hmm. now spells and attacks and class sort of the way the class exerted itself on the world now looked very similar in format, in approach, and in being balanced. Mm -hmm. Um, even though what fourth edition did, and it did this in all aspects of play, not just in this one was to say, Hey, you know, you've been complaining to us about how spells are just so wildly different than the rest of the game. So here it is when they're more similar, right? And everybody goes, Oh, well, we hate that too. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. be because it is, it, nothing's perfect and it is hard. Right. And, and there are a lot of things when, when you look through these spells in fifth edition, and, and every edition has to do this, right? It has to say, okay, we've got these old spell lists. What do we bring forward? And it's generally the same things you mm -hmm. expect, right? Magic missile always and shield always and detect magic. But then it's like, well, you know, we might make some tweaks and you might tweak the schools of magic. You might tweak what level it is, mm -hmm. right? A little higher, a little lower. Sometimes you modify the damage a little bit, right? Maybe it was too weak or too strong. You modify how a spell scales. So like a spell, in fact, a lot of spells used to work the way Fireball used to work, which is that it would be a die of damage per level. And it might have a minimum because, well, it's a third level spell, but so you had to be fifth level to do that. But, you know, now you see that it's not what is your spellcaster level, but it's uh, based on the level that you cast it and you can upcast it, as you mentioned, and now it's more dice each higher level you do. And, and that becomes a new uniform system for, for upcasting, where it's either going to add a die of damage or it's going to add another target or some, some kind of simple way of scaling it up. And then additions are always looking at whether a new spell should exist, right? And, and additions of the past have sometimes done this disastrously, where they create a new spell that's just so good that everybody's making use of it. And the, the, you can also see the reverse, a spell that used to be uh, like say Greece, right, was super popular in third edition, and now it's just not good enough yep. to cast. So you never see anyone cast Greece, right? And color spray would be really strong in one edition, but now it's hypnotic pattern, right? And so just it's it's always fascinating these tweaks yeah. that happen to the spells. Yeah, yeah, and and it, that just speaks back to the complicated nature of the system and the need to balance it versus the need to give the players who love complexity mm -hmm. that part of the game for them to play with. And mm -hmm. I don't fault players that like that. I don't no. fault that you know, being in the game. It's just a personal preference on my, my part to you know, always try to m move the game in a narrative direction, even just slightly in a narrative direction well, um, versus a that. mechanical one that narrative direction and, and also to George's question earlier, um, right. The spells, I, there's an increasing desire by all games, not just D and D to sort of codify more and standardize more and have sort of dependable language. And there are good reasons to do that. But what it also means is that you end up with a real divergence between a lot of spells that are so very specific and narrowly interpreted. And then these sort of wilder spells, right? And so a good example, classic example is illusions. And illusions have often driven DMs mad as they tried to consider what to do with this. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, imagine that you say, hey, I create an illusion of whatever, right? Some, some kind of monster, a troll. And what does that get me? That answer mm -hmm. has varied across any table, right? Like, like table A, B, C, right. D, E, you get different questions on each one. One DM is going to be wildly on your side and go, oh, yeah, you know, all the goblins cower and, you know, they, they, they give up, you know, and someone else is going to say uh, one guy doesn't believe it's real, rolls to disbelieve, made it. Now none of them believe. 
Uh, another one's going to interact with it, for, you know, for a round. Or all of the right. goblins waste a round attacking, with it, and then they conclude it's not real, right? Right. So you get this divergence. Yep. Do we want that divergence, right? How important right. is it is it to yeah. have this specific language? Right, and that divergence is huge. I mean, Teos gave you a perfect example, but if we step back and think about that in terms of the mathematics of mm -hmm. of the encounters of the game, right? what does what does obviously all the goblins giving up and running away you've just won one d and d uh w o n d and d <laughs> uh but if if every goblin then wastes their attack on attacking this illusionary troll that's basically like stunning or incapacitating all of those things now imagine if you said this first level spell you can stun or incapacitate or take away the action of 20 creatures you'd say mm -hmm. that spell's broken but mm -hmm. that's what some people you know try to get away with or allow and and narratively that's fine that's cool but if you want this game to work mathematically you have to find a way to to cap that uh mm -hmm. to to put some guardrails around it otherwise you know, every player is like, well, we're all going to play illusionists and, you know, right. everyone will run away from these horrible creatures that we're making. And, and there's our campaign. And it's true of the math as well. Right. So like lightning bolt is a spell yeah. that in previous editions could bounce off a wall and inflicted damage again. Yeah. Uh, and, and one of the funniest things was playing the gold box D&D &D video games where it oh, was yeah. not very good at letting you know what the angle was. And so it would bounce back and forth and probably TPK right. your party. And so you would restore the game, put your caster in a slightly different place, castellating, but until you finally got it right. But, you know, at the yeah. heart of it is the idea that this spell had the capacity to do way more damage than is written. Is that okay, right? And what was concluded for several editions is no. <laughs> Absolutely not. We're not okay with that. Yeah. And so Lightning Bolt is generally weaker right. than Fireball because we don't want that swinginess to exist, which is fascinating, yeah. right? Like that's a decision we've made. Yeah, and and then we come to the conundrum of, you know, spells that are more narrative focused. One of my one of my favorite things I've ever made is that gift of gab spell mm. for acquisitions yes. incorporated. Love it. And it 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 was you know it was a spell that was meant to be sort of a joke, but not a joke. Mm -hmm. Right? It was a spell that was meant to not be not be mechanically powerful but narratively powerful and if the game master saw a way to make it be mechanically powerful the game master could allow that to happen if uh if you're not aware the gift of gab is a reaction where you can make character uh creatures within a certain range i think it's 30 feet forget the last thing you said for the last six seconds <laughs> so in other words if you say something idiotic and you realize that you can cast this as a reaction and oh they forgot that you said this insult <laughs> or you accidentally gave away the location of your secret layer or whatever um and i you know i cast it or i i created it sort of as a way for players to be joking at the table and say the things that they wish their character would say, and then use a spell slot to be able to get away with it yeah. for humorous effect. Because I know that my group could really use that spell pretty much oh, yeah. at will if they mm -hmm. so chose. Uh, but I love seeing like streaming groups using it yeah. uh, to, to, to do fun and different things yeah. uh, and let game masters like uh like our question earlier i think from george was um yeah have it be more of a utility kind of spell that you can actually turn hinge a game on if you so choose yeah and it's great i mean i love it as a dm i love when someone comes up with a great use of a spell right like you know if, if the monsters are coming down a rope and you cast grease on that rope I mean, that's amazing, right? Like you just have to conclude right. that, well, they're just, you know, they're, anyone on there is going to fall. I don't care what the check is. It's a grease covered rope, right? Like forget about it. And those things right. are great. 
But what so often happens when we, when we cut down enough on those kinds of interactions is that nobody chooses Greece in the first place. It's not even available to cast mm -hmm. it. So the perfect situation comes up for this and no one uses it. And that's a shame because, you know, as you said, magic and exceptions, it's also it's not just an exception to the rules, but it's an exception to your to your general play. And even things that are imperfect, right. right? Say like, I remember I had a caster, I would often cast Stinking Cloud. One of the things I loved about it was the chaos that would ensue as it forced monsters to get out of their normal positioning on the map. They would have to spread around this area and focus. And it just changes the dynamic of a battle in what is a really good way, even though generally some people are complaining about like, oh, you know, we can't, I can't fight that one thing or get to the whatever, but it, changes it up in a way that wakes everybody up and creates really nice interactions. And so I miss that and I want more the, of that. Yeah. The perfect example of that, the last game I played as a player, I cast that into a room and we were waiting for the monsters to come out for us. But one of our players, of course, ran into the stinking cloud. And so we can't see this, this character and got paralyzed <laughs> by the monster. And so we know as players that this is happening. And one of the players says, oh. boy, do you think, do you think he's in trouble? And I said, <laughs> he'd yell if he was in trouble. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, so we're all like, okay. And so he's getting absolutely demolished in the room. Uh, and we're just like, well, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll wait for them to come out and bad things happen. But you know, that's the fun, like you said, of yeah. having, these spells that change the the, the normal way that you yeah. you think about the game and and I I love to see that that sort of uh, play. Yeah, absolutely, hundred percent. And and I'll take the the balance being imperfect if it's creative enough, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Uh, any other thoughts on spells in general? You know, I I really wish we had the time and the energy to go spell by spell. Uh, but that that is not yeah. where our headspace is going mm -hmm. to be for a, a bit. Um, and so I'm sure that there are you know podcasts and streams out there where people dive into spells and you know, if you if you are interested in that sort of granularity, please go go uh, assuage your curiosity. Mm -hmm. So next time we will talk about the appendices of the player's handbook, including things like conditions and gods of the multiverse, the planes, statistics and inspirational reading. But with that, we wanna thank you for listening. Thank you also to the people who have joined our Patreon. Um, you are keeping the lights on for us and we really do appreciate that. Whether you're a master of dungeon supporter, or a master of the realm supporter who gets a shout out in our show notes or a master of the multiverse patron who gets a shout out right now. And that includes Craig Bailey, Steve Bissonette, evil John, Darren Chandler, Robin Dermy, Andy Edmonds at Nerdronomicon, Ben Heisler and Paige Lightman, Sean Hurst, Brian King, Travis Lee, Adrian Marquez at post fiction RPG audio, Eric Mengi, the Micro Ant, Falcon Neal, Chance Russo, Krishna Simonse, Joe Tyler, James Walton, Graham Ward, and John Wilson. You too can become a patron of the show by going to patreon.com slash mastering DD. Uh, if you if you're not a patron, we still appreciate your support. If you could go to Apple Podcast or use whatever podcatcher that you uh, are listening on to give us a review because that helps us become a little bit more visible. And if you're on YouTube, well, you can always leave a comment there and, and gaze at our beautiful visages. So, Teos, where can people find you? Yeah, uh, well, uh, Twitter has shut down third-party apps, or most of them, so I can no longer use my Twitterific app. So I'm less and less on Twitter or very imperfectly, and I may not see anything you send me. So the place to find me is really now Mastodon, AlphaStream at dice.camp. Uh, my blog, alphastream.org, is the place to find all my latest works. Uh, and uh, Sean, what about you? Where do we find you? Uh, I am still on Twitter for the time being at Sean Merwin. 
Uh, the podcast is also on Twitter, so you can check us out there at Mastering D&D. Uh, the podcast is also on Mastodon at Dice.Camp, and I am on Mastodon at uh, Sean Merwin at uh, Tabletop.Social. You can also find us on the YouTube channel Mastering Dungeons and, of course, on Patreon. So, Teos, we are continuing to navigate the OGL and continuing to work our way through 5th edition. So what do you think we should do now? Well, honestly, I'm going to go back to Tatum Bay's question because I think I'm going to get the term designated okay enough forever GM as a t-shirt. Oh, I could I could use the t-shirt, the hat, the socks, and all of that. 